This is They Create Worlds, Episode 51, Sons of Pong. One, two, three, four. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. This is episode 51, where we get to go back to Atari for some reason. Well, sort of. Don't, don't worry. We're not, we're not really going to cover Atari again. It's, it's been done. To death. <laughs> At least for now. I'm sure we'll come back. Lots of people like Atari. It's a good subject. It is. But not today. No, but we are going to deal with something that... Atari gave birth to all of its sons, the sons of Pong. That's right. As I'm sure most of our listeners are probably aware, especially if they've been listening to us natter on for a while now, Pong was really the first successful video game commercially. The thing about Pong, though, that we have talked about a little bit in the past, but not in detail, is that Atari's Pong was only a very small part of the total market that developed. It was cloned to death. It was variationed to death. That's not a word, but bear with me. It was placed in a lot of non-traditional arcade venues, and eventually it just oversaturated everything and collapsed the market. People often think that we had Pong, and then we had video games. It's like Pong hits, video games are huge, and everyone lived happily ever after. And the fact of the matter is, is that Pong was a fad. It wasn't even considered that video games were a fad. It was specifically Pong was a fad. And like all fads, it burned itself out. And the future direction of video games was not at all clear after that happened. But of course, eventually other genres were developed, other hit games were developed, and we did get the vibrant video game industry as we know it today. But there were more bumps in the road than a lot of people think, which is why kind of this story of Pong and the Pong fad is an interesting story in and of itself that I think is worth talking about. Now, we're not going to be covering specifically Pong on the chip that came later. This is more a focus on Atari came out with Pong in the arcade, and then we had all of these copycat Pongs that are all over the place and ball and paddle games, variations on that kind of theme. It's really more of an arcade-focused episode, right? Exactly. Obviously, history kind of repeated itself again with the Pong on the chip, and you got the same thing happening where Atari introduces a product, and they were not actually the first to do a Pong on the chip, but in terms of success, they were the first that kind of got the market excited. I mean, Magnavox did it before they did, and a couple of others did. And obviously, the original Magnavox Odyssey had a ball and paddle game on it all the way back in 1972. But history did kind of repeat itself again in the home with this very brief boom-bust cycle of the dedicated console market, which is also an interesting topic, but we do very much want to just focus on the arcade today, which is mostly the Pong market in 1973, with a little bit of bleed over into 74 and 75 as well. All right. So Atari came out with Pong. It's a hit. People like it for some reason. (laughs) Well, you know. It was definitely very different than anything that had been in the arcade before. You kind of have to put yourself back into the mindset of what an arcade game truly meant 
circa 1972. Pong comes out very, very late in 72. We call them arcade games because there were penny arcades way back in the day, as we discussed in our Origins of the Arcade episode. And then, of course, just a few years later, there was the shopping mall arcade boom, and so there were arcades again. So kind of we think of the games around the venue just because there were times when arcades were ubiquitous and everywhere. But the fact of the matter is, is at the time Pong came out, arcades were not everywhere. You had arcades in the inner cities. You would have them in inner city buildings and and that kind of thing. Arcades that would have a couple of dozen games or something like that. But most people did not play quote-unquote arcade games in the arcade circa 1972. It was really a bar market, a bar and tavern market. Sometimes it would just be a couple of games in the corner of the bar, which is something you still see today some places. Uh, Most places it's been replaced by gambling games. It's been replaced by video poker or video slots. But you occasionally see a bar that still maybe has a pinball machine tucked away in the corner or a Miss Pac-Man Galaga anniversary machine tucked into a corner or something like that. So it could mean that, or it could mean a game room. A lot of these bars would actually have a room that was set aside as, as part of the bar where all the games kind of lived, and not just video games. There might be a pool table in there, too. There might be some dartboards in there. Trying to make it more of a go-to venue than anything else. Exactly, because you kind of want to separate the people that are ordering lots of drinks or ordering lots of food from the people that are playing the games because that can get rowdy or noisy or people crowding around a machine, and that kind of inhibits the purchasing of stuff up at the bar or the purchasing of stuff in the, in the tables or the booths or whatever. So this was the primary venue for these games. and. Not just all bars, either. It was really a working-class form of entertainment. And really, the arcade always had been. I mean, we talked a little bit in our origin of the arcade episode that the real draw of the penny arcade at the turn of the 20th century is that it provided these mutoscopes, these you know short films, these audio recordings on the phonographs and whatnot. It allowed you to be entertained in a similar way to the way a vaudeville show would entertain you. But it was a lot cheaper to put a penny in a coin slot than it was to pay for a ticket to the theater. And I mean, a ticket to the theater wasn't super expensive back then either in terms of what we think of money today. But if you're a working class person that doesn't have a lot of money, you can't necessarily afford to go to the theater. Well, not just that. Going to the theater was a social event. You Mm -hmm. had to dress up. So your average working Joe would have to get his Sunday best on in order to go to a Broadway show or something. Sure. And a lot of them didn't even have much in the way of a Sunday best. Absolutely. Something that they could probably get away with their local church, but not something they could get away with at a Broadway or event. Absolutely. So there's always been, up to this point, up to the 1970s, it changes later, there's always been this association of the coin-op with the working class. Further enhanced by the fact that there's been such an intermingling of coin-op and gambling, which again we've talked about, the line between a slot machine and a pinball machine 
was not always very well defined at various points in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. There were a lot of pinball machines that were specifically tailored to payouts and to gambling and were in some ways fairly indistinguishable from slot machines. Plus, you have pool. Pool is kind of the other major game pillar of the industry. Pool is obviously associated with betting and with smoke-filled pool halls full of near-do-wells. I mean, even today, I think a pool hall is something that has a negative connotation. I mean, not that necessarily pool in general does, but a pool hall. I mean, the upper class played pool or played billiards, too, back in the day. But, you know, the upper class, they had their billiard room or their game room. They played pool at home. The pool hall was for people that weren't well-to-do enough to have their own pool table. So there's kind of a negative connotation to the pool hall as well. You sort of see this in a lot of movies where if you see pool, it's usually in a biker bar. You got rough-and-tumble men in leather jackets, and usually a uh, fight starts, and someone breaks a pool cue over someone else's head, and then insanity starts exactly or you have something like the music man which has the the whole song about how pool is evil and because the main character is trying to run a scam where he gets the town to start a marching band and basically his argument is is we got to have something like this to keep the young people occupied or they're all going to go start playing pool and then the whole neighborhood's going to go to pot it's the same way with comic books video games and whatever else those youngins are playing these days it really is so Coin-operated games were not respectable. Pinball was not respectable. Pool, played in a public venue like this, was not respectable. The jukebox was certainly not respectable because that was associated with not their rock and roll music. And with that crazy guy named Elvis Presley with the crazy hair and the gyrating hips, heaven forbid women would have to deal with some sort of gyrating hips. Exactly. Scandalous. Scandalous. And they would have a commitment if they saw modern music today. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Standards are constantly changing. Obviously, all the conservative talk radio shows these days, they use rock music like in their intros. And it's like if they were conservatives in the 1950s, they had been lamenting how horrific rock and roll music was. And now it's just part of their intros, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, but that's just changing times, changing standards. So these are the venues that are having arcade kind of games and so on and so forth. And this is the environment that Pong is brought into. Exactly. And your typical working class bar is generally going to have about five or six coin operated objects in it. There's going to be a pinball table, maybe two pinball tables. If you're in one of the many communities that still at this time has pinball outlawed, where it's not allowed in your community, You'll probably have a shuffle alley instead. We talked about shuffle alleys in our arcade episode. You're going to have a cigarette vending machine. The vending industry and the coin-operated amusement industry are largely separate industries. The guys that are installing your big soda and snack machines are not the same guys that are installing and maintaining your games. But cigarette machines were the exception. Because cigarette machines were so ubiquitous in bars... Whereas, obviously, you don't put a soda machine in a bar because why are you going to split drinks 50-50 with an operator when the entire point of your business is to sell people drinks? 
you don't understand the nature of your business and you invite this person in and then obviously you go under in six months. Exactly. So cigarette vending machines were the one type of vending machine that kind of the coin-op amusement people carried. So you're going to have a pinball machine or two. You're going to have a cigarette vending machine. You're going to have a jukebox. This is starting to vanish by the early 1970s. The jukebox is starting to be replaced by piped music, by a Muzak, (laughs) you know. But, you know, you probably still have your jukebox. And then you'll have a pool table. If you're a larger establishment, again, maybe you'll have a second pool table. That's basically what the industry is. You know, your pool table's good for a long time. Your jukebox is good for a long time. Obviously, you're always updating the records in it. You're dealing with your distri- uh, with your operator or your distributor to update the records. But the jukebox itself is good for a long time. And the pinball machines, you change them out every six months. Maybe a year, yeah. depending. That's the business. If you're on one of the coasts, you have arcades on the boardwalks. If you're an amusement park, you probably have an arcade. And Nolan Bushnell, as we've talked about, he got his start in coin-op in an amusement park arcade in Utah. If you're in the city, there'll be arcades around, some smaller, some bigger. But it's primarily a bar trade. That's what it is. That's why something as simple as Pong was important. We talked about this a little bit before. The first game that Nolan Bushnell tried, Computer Space, it was just too complex for a working-class bar. Pong is simple. Pong is addictive. And Pong is something that you can have fun playing with your friends. So it was the perfect game to introduce this new medium. The problem was that Atari was this very small company. Very small. I mean, we talked about how small their startup facilities were in our Atari history episodes. That had no idea how to run a manufacturing line, had no idea how to build a coin-op machine for the rigors of the arcade environment, and had no way to produce these machines at the rate that the distributors and operators wanted them. That is why immediately there was room for competition. Now, the arcade industry has, throughout its entire history, been a copycat industry. You go back to any period of time in arcade history, One guy comes up with a hit product, pretty soon there's a half dozen, a dozen imitators for that product on the market. That is the way the industry works. It's not like video's the first time this happened, but it really is the first time it happened on this scale since the introduction of pinball. When the first really successful pinball machines came out, Gottlieb's Baffle Ball and Bally's Ballyhoo, there were machines before that, but these were the first two that really sold in the tens of thousands of units and got people taking notice. Then suddenly everybody was making pinball. I mean, everybody, dozens upon dozens of companies, many of them just mom and pop shops, essentially making them in their backyard, practically, because this is a time when the industry wasn't quite so well established and the machines were cheap enough that your small cottage industries could do it. And obviously, eventually the big boys took over. Eventually, the pinball industry thinned out and consolidated. But everybody was getting involved in pinball. You saw that again with video. And, and really, I don't think you saw anything in between that had quite that level of intensity. I mean, when Sega introduced the more advanced audiovisual games like Periscope in the late 1960s, which we've talked about in some of our arcade episodes, yeah, some of the big American companies started copying them. Midway started releasing similar games. Chicago Coin started doing it. Uh, Allied Leisure, a company down in Florida, started doing it. But these were big and complex enough games that you only had two or three companies 
copying. You didn't have a situation where dozens of individuals, dozens of companies are getting involved. But with Pong, you had that again. There are a couple of reasons for that. One is the one I already said. Atari could not keep up with demand. And you have to understand, people think of the Pong craze starting in 1972, because that's when Atari technically released Pong. But it really didn't. The Pong craze didn't really start until 1973. Atari sold its very first units in November, late, late November, 1972. As we said, they had a small manufacturing capability, and so they were basically placing a few machines with distributors on the West Coast in Los Angeles and San Francisco. They weren't national yet. They really didn't go national until March of 1973. March of 73 is when you see the first advertisements for Atari and for Pong in the coin-op trade publications, in Cashbox, for instance. So it's really a case of it didn't really go national and really become a super big craze until the second quarter of 73, almost. Pretty much. Pretty much. So that's really when it started. The other kind of thing that spurred so much copycatting is that compared to other coin-operated machines, Pong was super-duper simple. Pong is made of TTL hardware, and it's made entirely with off-the-shelf parts. You really don't need to know very much about electrical engineering to be able to copy the Pong board. All you need to do is find a Pong machine somewhere or buy a Pong machine, which other manufacturers certainly had the money to do, and copy the board part for part, and you have Pong. Pretty much, if you have the part, a schematic, however you obtain that schematic, you can make as many clones as you want, because all it's doing is, I have a block, I have another block, I have something that makes the ball go left, right, something that says start, some sort of end condition, and if this ball hits these other things, it bounces off somewhere. Sure, and in terms of the rest of the cabinet, in terms of wiring it in, I mean, you need to wire in a coin slot, obviously, and a coin return. You need to wire in the controls, but the controls are just two potentiometers, two pots. That's not much. You need to wire in a television, which isn't super duper hard. And you need to build a cabinet, which if you're already an arcade manufacturer, you, you understand. Know how to do that. You understand how to do the cabinet. That's nothing. If you're trying to copy a pinball machine or one of these really advanced audiovisual games like Periscope or Speedway, you need to understand steppers. You need to understand relays. You need to understand all of these crazy electric and mechanical and electromechanical parts, all of this analog technology that is very finicky, very hard to deal with, and has to be tuned just so to make sure that your gameplay works correctly. Definitely. With a lot of those electromechanical games, you had motors that, depending on what the voltage is, depends on how fast it spins, and you have to regulate that voltage mm -hmm. to a T. We're not talking like, oh, you just send it 5 volts. It's, I need to send it 3.756 volts. <laughs> and then if I want to increase the difficulty, it's 3.762. Mm -hmm. And so that's why in between pinball, and remember pinball started as a purely mechanical game. It was not an electromechanical game when it started, as we've talked about before. That's why between the earliest pinball and Pong, 
when you had copycats, you only had three or four copycats because it was the companies that already had the expertise with all of this very finicky and special equipment that could do the copying. Not anyone could take apart a periscope machine and perfectly replicate how that periscope machine works. But Pong, it's simple. I mean, you probably have to subcontract out to somebody who knows how to do uh, circuit boards, you know, do PC boards. But But once you have the board, you can make a schematic. Exactly. I I could probably take the Atari that's over there, take it apart, look at the circuit board, write down all the little parts on it because it's resistors, transistors, a few processors. Mm Mm-hmm. Look at how they're wired because all a circuit board is is just how are these things etched on so that these wires connect. Right. And make it. I could do it on a breadboard by just buying the components and then wiring the stuff in. I could then take that schematic and then there's plenty of places online I could say, hey, here's a circuit board with these holes with this layout I want. Give it to me and there'll be, oh, yeah, we can do that on demand and give us 20 bucks. Right. The only part that's complicated or potentially complicated is the microchips, because the microchips have a lot of very uh, delicate, fine, tiny things going on. Obviously, uh, an integrated circuit in 1972 does not have the same amount of craziness going on as an Intel processor has going on in it today. Right. And even back then, you had simpler central processing units that not even for a general purpose computer, you had... I think back when I was doing computer engineering in college, there was this little 8205 chip, I think it was, that was really, really simple. It just has a few leads on it for things coming into it, and you could program it to do whatever you wanted. Mm -hmm. It was a simple program, but it's only something that's really basic. Right. Something that's modern that people can actually play with today in order to achieve that same kind of hardware stuff is Raspberry Pis. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Because there's people who do all sorts of really crazy things. It's almost like you have, instead of Pong on a chip or something, it's like a computer on a chip. And you just take this computer on a chip that's very, very basic, and you can add in little add-in modules of whatever you want and then code it to do whatever you want it to do. You could take a Raspberry Pi and have it be a web server, a mini game thing, Mm -hmm. or you can have it do what a lot of these older processors used to be programmed to do, except it's a lot more accessible now. I want to have my own little custom electronic door opener thing that takes a code in. All I have to do is just program it so that it constantly listens for a certain code to come in through these pins. And then, oh yes, that code's valid. Okay. then I will send a signal down these pins and that activates a motor that opens the door and into the house I go. Right. And, uh, of course, remember that uh, when we're talking about Pong in these games uh, in this period, in the early 70s, we're not even talking about anything programmable whatsoever. We're not talking about having to even know anything about software because it's entirely hardwired logic. It's using circuits, but it's not using microprocessors. And it's probably not even using large-scale integration. Uh, It's probably mostly medium-scale integration circuits, which means you're only talking about a couple of hundred gates on the chip. I mean, you're talking about a pretty small amount. But the thing is, you don't even have to know any of that. Because, as I said, Pong used completely off-the-shelf components. All you had to do was figure out what the part number was and what the manufacturer was of each one of those chips on the board, and you didn't need to know how they worked. You just had to make sure you reserved a spot for them where you're supposed to on the board, and then you just buy them from your local chip supplier and plug them onto that board that you've fabricated, 
and you're done. <laughs> yeah, it was really, really simple to recreate that because all Pong was is hardware video game. There's no software at all. Exactly. And it's a very simple hardware at that. The environment was there to be able to do this cloning, and the desire was there to be able to do this cloning. If Atari had been able to manufacture 150 units a day, let's say, from the beginning, there would have undoubtedly still been cloning, but it may not have been quite as widespread. But Atari was lucky if they could get a dozen units manufactured a day in the very beginning. They had a very primitive assembly line. They just could not meet the burgeoning demand because this was huge. And it was huge for a few reasons. It wasn't just because the game was new and fun, though obviously that's a big part of it. But here's the thing. It's space age. This is the period of time when the moon landings are only just a few years old at this point. Yeah, that happened in 69 or thereabouts. When people even think of computers or computer displays, they're thinking NASA. They're thinking rocket science. They're thinking this is like way out there incredible tech. It is light years away from a pinball machine. It doesn't have the stigma that a pinball machine has. It doesn't have the stigma that a pool table has. And because it's sophisticated, It feels like something that is not merely for the working class. Now, the controls are simple enough that a working class individual can still understand it. It's not too many buttons, too many controls, too much newness thrown at them at once. So your working class bar guy can understand how to play that game. But because it's computer graphics, even if they are very primitive computer graphics, it feels like something that is meant for someone more sophisticated, more elite. And so it's something that the middle class then has great permission to play. It's, it's inviting them in. It's like, it's okay. This isn't a pool table in a smoke-filled pool hall. It isn't one of those dirty pinball machines that the working class use to gamble away their, their paycheck while they're drinking away the rest of their paycheck. It's like, no, this is something that is fun and entertaining for the whole family and is just so amazingly sophisticated. It involves technology. America is great with our technology. We have science, and we want little Johnny and little Susie to go and play with science. So they're going to play Pong together, and somehow vicariously osmosis, the science of Pong, will infuse itself deep inside them, and they will become super scientists in order to make more Pong. (laughs) And, you know, obviously we say that to be facetious, but there is a grain of truth to that. A bit of a tangent, because this isn't so much necessarily with Pong as it is for some of the games that appeared later when the market was more sophisticated, like your Space Invaders, your Asteroids, that kind of stuff in the Golden Age. But one has to remember that in a time when the only computers We're basically in research labs, whether those be corporate labs or government labs or university labs, or we're behind the scenes running things for major corporations like banks or airlines or whatnot. And of course, all the crazy stuff the federal government does and the military does. The arcade game or the home game, but more often in the early days, the arcade game 
was really the first exposure to computers for a large portion of the the population. I mean, we don't think of arcade games really as computers. That's not our first way of processing what those are, because they are very, very, very specific one-purpose-use computers. But they're computers. They have computer logic, you know? And so I think there was something of an idea, and there are certainly academics that have posited this, that the video game was kind of an important medium to introduce young people to the changing economy and the change over to computers. It gave them some level of familiarity with computer graphics and user inputs, even if they weren't programming, they weren't really engaging with a computer fully. It's kind of halfway between in a way that makes it ideal for starting to introduce people. And it it really does work out that way because if you look at the bedroom coders, uh, particularly in Britain, where we talked about the bedroom coder was was most common, though it was true in the United States too, but particularly Britain, what happens is little Johnny plays game A in an arcade. Little Johnny gets a computer at home. Little Johnny wants to play game A in the home, but this is the very early days of the industry. So nobody has made a game like Game A yet in the home, or if they have made it, maybe it's just not very good. So then little Johnny decides, well, I will learn how to program myself, and I will make that game in order to become familiar with programming. So it really does serve as something of a gateway to getting involved with computers on a broader level. Not just that, it really makes it so that electronics become accessible and almost like people become inoculated to it in everyday life. Really think of just how ubiquitous technology is in our days in the last 17 years. Oh, yeah. From the early 2000s to now. Early 2000s, I remember if you had a cell phone, you were probably doing drugs <laughs> because only the drug people who were handling drugs, they had cell phones so that they could quickly go to the customer. <laughs> Maybe a little bit more towards the late 90s there for that one. But sure, you get the idea. Now you can hardly walk around anywhere and not see just about everyone with a phone. And constantly on it. Oh, yes. And constantly having that sort of attachment to the hip syndrome going on. We, we have screen addiction. And what is the first screen that really addicted people? Arcade video games. And specifically Pong. It really made it accessible to the general population because you're dealing with a population that's very work with their hands this is reality thing i understand Mm -hmm. how mechanical things work i know how all this other stuff works exactly if there's anything related to electronics and computers well that's the egghead super scientist off in the government Mm -hmm. or those crazy people off in some research lab at a (laughs) university right or those really smart people by that super corporation that handles financing for me, but I don't even realize that they're doing that. Let alone half the employees at the company even realize <laughs> that there's computers handling some level of things going on exactly. with punch cards and everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. By having video games, it really makes it so that it humanizes it almost, where you have a video game that goes, this is something that's not just 
pie in the sky thing. This is something that can really relate to you as an individual and it's entertaining you. Well, if it can entertain me, what else could it do? I could not put it better myself. Absolutely. And so that is kind of to to back it into kind of our topic again. That is the other half of what makes Pong so alluring and which makes Pong so successful, aside from the fact that it's just a fun game. Because you could theoretically make an electromechanical game very similar to Pong. And in fact, there was an electrical mechanical game very similar to Pong that literally came out the same year Pong did that took the arcade market by storm. And that's called Air Hockey, mm-hmm. which is basically Pong writ large on a, on a flat table. And obviously it's it's goals and stuff. It's not just getting past the panel. But I mean, there's and a lot of similarity. Air Hockey today. You do. Uh, and Air Hockey was a huge hit. I'm talking the original Air Hockey because... Way back in the day, there was it was invented by the company Brunswick, and Brunswick was the only company that made air hockey. Air hockey was a huge hit in 1972. They moved about 33,000 units, which was humongous back in the day. So you can do that with electromechanical games. Air hockey did it, but Pong did better. In 1973, the video game market was estimated to be about 70,000 units. That's not just Pong, it's also various Pong variants, and the couple of games that Atari did that weren't Pong that year that we talked about in the Atari episode that didn't do as well, so that's not quite all Pong-like units, but it mostly is, because in 1973, the market is mostly Pong. It's mostly ball and paddle games. Exactly. Speedway, when it hit 10,000 units in 1969, was the biggest game anyone had seen in years. Then Air Hockey in 1972, 33,000 units makes 10,000 units look like child's play. Well, now we're talking about double that in ball and paddle games in 1973. 70,000. I mean, that's unheard of since the height of pinball during the Depression. And of course, Atari does not have the capability to make 70,000 units. They eventually start getting their manufacturing straightened out. But Atari's share of that is somewhere between six and 8,000 units. So we don't have exact sales figures for them. But it's somewhere in that six to, to 8,000 unit range. So, I mean, they are 10% of the market, less than 10% of the market, because you get this wave of clone manufacturers. And it kind of happens in three phases, though it all happens very quickly because we're, we're talking about 1973 for all of this. So we're talking about over the course of a year. The very first companies that start copying it are companies that are already in California. Because, as we've discussed before, the center of the coin-op industry is Chicago. That's where Bally is. That's where Gottlieb is. That's where Williams is. That's where Chicago Coin is. Imagine that. All the big companies are in Chicago. It's practically luck that Atari was able to get started in California, or I should say Nolan Bush now, pre-Atari, was able to get started in California because he and Ted Dabney found just about the only company in existence, Nutting Associates, which of course we did a whole episode on, that was actually releasing product in California. Without that, I mean, they really wouldn't have been able to get started because even though Nutting wasn't the best company and computer space wasn't the best product, Nutting had a slightly better idea on how to manufacture than the Atari guys did when they get started. They kind of needed that as their stepping stone into running their own operation. 
there's really not much on the West Coast in terms of arcade manufacturing. I mean, nutting is pretty much it. There's one other company down in Burbank, uh, Southern California, outside Los Angeles, called Four Play Manufacturing. That's F-O-R hyphen P-L-A-Y, though I'm sure that the similarity between Four Play and Four Play <laughs> did not escape their notice. It's not spelled the same way as, as Four Play is. And that was a couple of engineers that got together with a local distributor that funded them. They started doing some solid state work down in Los Angeles. And they were actually the only company that ripped off Computer Space. Computer Space was not a huge hit, so it did not inspire the clone making that Pong did. But this one company, 4Play, down in Burbank, actually created a Computer Space clone called Star Trek. No license. <laughs> this was not authorized by the good folks at Paramount Television. Nevertheless, it was Star Trek. They were able to do that because these guys had some solid state knowledge. I don't really, I, I know the names. Uh, I won't say them here because they're, they're meaningless without context. I know the names of the people that founded the company. I don't know who they were or where they came from. This is a company that disappeared in the flash of an eye. I mean, they were literally fly by night. Right. But I mean, they knew solid state because they were releasing some other solid state non-video products. And so because they had that solid state knowledge... And because they were close enough to the heart of where this was going on, even though Southern California is obviously really not that close to Northern California, the distribution network, companies like Nutting and like Early Atari were stronger in California than they necessarily were in other parts of the country because at least it was easier to get in touch with the distribution within the same state. They were, they were close enough to what was going on that they could see the product and copy it. There was foreplay down in Burbank. There was Nutting Associates, which, of course, is still around, even though Nolan Bushnell's not there anymore. They get other engineers, and they're still there, ready to make video games. These are really the only two companies on the West Coast at the very beginning. And so, of course, both of them put out Pong games. By the time Atari is going national in March, that is enough of a lead time that the local companies like Nutting and Foreplay can get a product ready for national distribution at the exact same time, because these are companies that are a little more established. In Foreplay's case, not much more, but still a little more. And so they could scope out these early units that were making their way out in November, December, because their first two distributors were Advanced Automatic in San Francisco and uh, Portal. I don't know if he pronounces his name Portal or Portal or Portal. It's P-O-R-T-A-L-E. But uh, Portal, Portale, down in Los Angeles. So from the very beginning, they had this distribution in the San Francisco area and in the Los Angeles area. So companies like Foreplay and, and Nutting could see it very early on and buy a unit or rip off a unit or however they went about doing it and copy that circuit board and put something similar into production. So by March, Foreplay has their game out. Nutting may have as well. We don't know exactly when Nutting's game came out because there's not an announcement in the trades. A lot of these games, there's an announcement in the trades when they came out, like Cashbox, which was a weekly publication. So if something's announced in Cashbox, Cashbox is a little bit behind because you have to have content ready to go, especially in the days before uh, computer formatting, desktop publishing. You have to have something ready to go a week or a week and a half in advance, whatever. But you can kind of narrow down when things came out by looking at the weekly announcements in Cashbox. 
there was never an announcement for Computer Spaceball, which was Nutting's game. It's a terrible name, ridiculously dumb name, but I guess they wanted to keep that, you know, they had Computer Space. Gotta keep going with that theme. So it's Computer Space Ball. We know it was around by July because it's mentioned for the first time in the trades in July, but it wasn't announced then. Uh, the mention in July is basically saying it's been out for a while. I mean, it says specifically in whatever the mention is that it's been out for a while. There's some indications it might have been out as early as January. There's uh, an issue. I forget whether it's Replay or Playmeter, uh, the two major coin-op publications. They didn't exist in 1972, 1973, but... In a retrospective article a couple of years later, they're talking to a British distributor. And this British distributor remembered Bill Nutting bringing Computer Spaceball to the, uh, the ATE show, the big coin show in Britain, in January of 73. Did he actually? I mean, he could be misremembering. So, I mean, we don't have any reports specifically from the show saying that this game was here. We just have a person's memory. Right. So it could have been the very first one. It could have been out as early as January, or it could have been a few months later. We just know it was out in the first half of 73. And it makes sense that it would be out quickly because Nutting's right there. Nutting knows Nolan. They knew he was working on games. I mean, it would make sense that they'd be able to find it and, and do something with it very quickly. Certainly, Four Plays was out by March. They were there by then. The other kind of local company that got involved right then in March was a company called Ramtech. Ramtech was founded by engineers that had worked together at a company called the Disk Corporation. They were led by Charles McEwen and his brother Mel McEwen, and there were several other co-founders as well, but the McEwens were kind of the impetus for this. They had broken away in... 71 or 72, uh, I forget which, but right before this, they had broken away from the Disc Corporation and founded their own company that was focused on high-end display systems, like really high-end. They provided display systems for the, the Viking NASA probe program. They provided displays for some of the very first CAT scanners that were coming out at the time. I mean, they were doing like high-end industrial medical displays. This was right kind of at the beginning of this kind of thing. I think we talked before about the fact that uh, when we were talking about racing games, we were talking about how Grand Track was the first game to really use a monitor. We were talking about how display systems were just not something that was really done back then. There was television, and if you had computers, you were usually, usually using teletypes. You, you weren't really using displays, but we're getting to the point now in the late 60s, early 70s, that displays are starting to become more common. And so Ramtech is founded to do these kind of displays. Because it's at the very beginning of the industry, they have some clients, but they don't really have enough clients to sustain themselves. It's very expensive work, and they just don't have enough sales to kind of make that viable all on its own. So they're really starting to hit some financial difficulty. They're doing well, but they just can't maintain cash flow with that product at this point in time. So it just so happens, we talked uh, before, I think, that the first Pong unit was placed on test in a bar called Andy Caps, named after the uh, Sunday Comics character. It just so happens that the CFO of Ramtech was a part owner of Andy Caps Tavern. Andy Caps was actually a frequent hangout for Ramtech engineers. 
completely coincidentally. So the Ramtech people saw that first Pong prototype. And the moment that prototype came out, they knew it was there. And so they played it, and they were like, this is kind of fun, and it uses a display, but it is so much simpler than the work we're doing, <laughs> you know, with, with high-end stuff. So it's like, it would not take us a lot of money to start up a coin-op thing, a Pong thing on the side, and make these games, because we have this expertise, we have this capability, since we're already a high-end display company. We can fund our important high-end work by doing this little ball and paddle video game operation on the side. And so that's what they do. And so Ramtech, Ramtech is not a well-remembered company today because they didn't make it into the golden age. Uh, around 1979, they shut down. At that point, there was more competition. It was more expensive. And if they were going to remain on top of the field, if they were going to remain successful, they were actually going to have to heavily invest in video games because we're at the time now where there are lots of video game companies that are sophisticated. It was always meant to just be a sideline. It was never meant to be the main business of Ramtech. So at the point where it started to become too big a financial investment relative to the return, they just got out. Um, so they're not very well remembered today because most of the companies that didn't make it into the golden age just didn't resonate with the public because, of course, it's the golden age that arcade games first became really huge. So those are the companies that most people in the general public, if they remember any companies, are the companies they remember. But Ramtech was actually a big deal in the 70s. They were not nearly as big as Atari or Bally, but they were about the fourth largest manufacturer of arcade games. Now, the gulf between numbers one and two, Atari and Bally, and number four, was huge. So it's not like being number four meant they had anywhere near the operation that Atari had. But it still meant that they had a bigger operation than, you know, uh, a half dozen of the really teeny tiny puny companies at the time, too. I mean, they were they were somewhat of a big deal, and they got their start specifically because they saw Pong as something that they could copy quickly and put into production quickly and help fund their high-end display business. So they come out in March as well. So that's kind of the first cluster of companies. Of those companies, Ramtech, I think, probably does the best. Foreplay, I don't think, ever really does much because they're gone by 1973. I mean, they just kind of vanish. Don't know what happened to them. I mean, they were such a small, insignificant company that the trades didn't cover them. So, I mean, they were just there, and then they were gone. And um, we don't have any records that have survived to our knowledge today. Right. Nutting, we've already talked about the fate of Nutting in our Nutting Associates episode, so we don't have to go there again. Nutting never manages to become a big deal. So Ramtech's probably the most successful of those kind of West Coast companies. There's one other company that gets involved in March, and they are the most successful of all the companies, and that's including Atari. Uh, so this is kind of the second phase, so to speak. I mean, they started at the same time, so breaking it into chronological phases really doesn't make sense, but I'm cat we can call it the second category rather than the second phase, I guess. The second category was basically one company and that company was Allied Leisure. Allied Leisure was, again, an unusual company. It was not in Chicago. It was in Florida, of all places. And it was in Florida just because uh, that's, that's kind of where the principles were. <laughs> it just so happens. Allied Leisure 
was founded by a gentleman named Dave Braun in partnership with a gentleman named Ron Halliburton. Dave Braun had been involved in the record business and then the coin-op business after that, all the way back to the 1940s. He started out by doing early recording uh, of kind of R&B acts kind of things uh, in the 1940s up, uh, up in New Jersey or New York, I think New Jersey. And then he got involved from there in the coin-op industry because, of course, with the jukebox, you know, there's, there's kind of a, an intersection between the record business and the, the coin-operated amusement business. He got involved with a company called Alltech that made kiddie rides and other stuff like that. Eventually, he retired. He had meant to, at that point, get out of the business entirely, but he had a son that suffered from cerebral palsy, and so he was wheelchair-bound and had somewhat limited motor function. He needed something for his son to to do essentially because that's that's a that can be a tough situation to to find oneself employment so he wanted his son to have something to occupy his time because his son's an adult at this point so he decides to found his own coin op company starts out as D and B uh because he's Dave and his son's name is Robert or Bob Bob Braun then they eventually change the name very quickly to Allied Leisure they're business people they're not technical people. So the technical person he brings in is Ron Halliburton. Ron Halliburton had gotten involved in the coin-op industry back in the 1950s. His first love was actually building stock cars, doing auto stuff. But then he ended up doing on the side uh, a vending machine project with, uh, with a guy that he also did cars with. And then from there, he decided to create a slot car game. And from there, he ended up being hired by Alltech to be an engineer at Alltech, and he rose to be president of the company eventually. So when Dave Braun needed uh, an engineer to head up the technical side of, of his new Allied Leisure Company, he turned to Ron Halliburton, and Ron Halliburton became secretary-treasurer, and then he also became the chief engineer and kind of led the technical side of things. Allied Leisure was very aggressive at looking towards the newer forms of coin-operated entertainment. Braun himself kind of had a history of this when he was at Alltech. He kind of innovated on kiddie rides. Uh, and, you know, by kiddie rides, what we're talking about is those little horses or those little cars that you, you don't see them so often, but used to be that in front of every grocery store and every convenience store and whatnot, you'd see a couple of rides like that where it's mock-up of a car or mock-up of a horse and you sit on it and you put your coin in and it kind of bobs up and down and all around. and. Your, you know, four or five year old can pretend that they are driving the car. You know, that's 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 a kitty ride. When I say kitty ride, that's what we mean. Yeah, it goes back and forth, forward to back, and sometimes a little bit up and down if you're lucky. Mm -hmm. And you get like a minute of it doing that for a quarter. Right. They were making these kitty rides, and he did some combination of kitty rides with traditional arcade concepts. Like he made a game where you're riding the horse, but you're also shooting at targets like in a shooting gallery game. It's combining a kind of a traditional coin-op genre with a kiddie ride. So Dave Braun was already a very forward-thinking guy. But the other part of it was, because they weren't in Chicago, they could not compete in the traditional genres, in, in things like pinball. And I, I believe we talked about this when we briefly talked about Atari's pinball division that they established for a time. 
it's not just the engineering expertise, because certainly Ron Halliburton had engineering expertise. It's that there's a whole ecosystem that's developed in Chicago. All the component manufacturers that have sprung up in Chicago. So you can get your solenoids, you can get your coils, you can get your steppers, you can get your knockers, you can get your relays, all for a much cheaper price in Chicago than you can in Florida or in California, because you have this whole ecosystem of companies that have developed the expertise and are very good at it and mass produce because they know the pinball companies will be buying in bulk. And the whole ecosystem is tailored towards Chicago being the best place to do pinball. So Allied Leisure knew that they couldn't really compete. It's the same thing Atari found out the hard way when they tried to make their own pinball machines later. They couldn't really compete in pinball, so they didn't even try. They latched on to the new games that were coming out. So we talked about how Nutting started the quiz game boom with uh, Computer Quiz. So they came up with their own, it wasn't a quiz game, but their own kind of knowledge-based game called Unscramble, where different combinations of letters would light up on the machine. It's not a video game. There's no monitor. And you had to unscramble these to form words. So it was kind of taking off on this new quiz game fad. And then they did a lot of the realistic driving games. You know, we talked about the rear projection games like Speedway and and whatnot, a, a couple of different episodes. So they really got involved in that. They did a a motorcycle game called Wild Cycle that was very fragile. It broke down a lot. These were complex games. But was when it worked, was a very good and very interesting game. And it actually had a soundtrack. It was one of the very first arcade games to have a soundtrack. And they did it with an 8-track player. Nice. So, you know, this game uh, they experienced some real success with. They were really trying to hit these new areas since the Chicago people didn't really have a huge amount of experience with some of these more advanced games either. It leveled the playing field and it gave them an opening that they could get in. So they were already known around the industry as a company that did kind of cutting edge product. They were also very, very vertically integrated. Since they didn't have this array of subcontractors that the Chicago companies could rely on, they vertically integrated. They built up a lot of this component capability within their own organization. They had a very good manufacturing line. They were very good at manufacturing. They made heavy use. They were, you know, they were down in Florida. They made heavy use of the Cuban immigrant population. You know, coming in after Castro took over the country, they made very good use of the Cuban immigrant population in their operations. And so they had a lot of people that they could get together, presumably for a a relatively cheap price and uh, train them really well. And I mean, they could crank a game out. So when Pong was in high demand, but nobody could get the units they wanted, nobody in this case being distributors. The logical place to go to try to step this up a little bit was down to Allied Leisure in Florida. And that's exactly what happened. I've, I've interviewed Gene Lipkin, and we've talked about Gene before because he was president and then co-president of Atari Coinop. But before he came to Atari, he was actually the sales manager at Allied Leisure. Uh, started there in, I think, 1969. So he was there well before the Pong boom. Gene told me that the way that Allied Leisure got into this Pong market is that a distributor, and he would not tell me the distributor, he, the names have been changed to uh, protect the guilty, 
he told me that one of the distributors that was frustrated that they could not get a game, could not get Pong games that they wanted, sent Allied Leisure an Atari Pong unit and said, see what you can do with this. You know, knock it off. The distributor actually came to them and said, please knock off this game so we can order it from you because you know how to build games. And these Atari people have no idea what they're doing. (laughs) We would like it if you would be so kind as to look at this thing and come to an arrangement. And so that's exactly what happened. It was... It was a mess. Uh, the, the VP of manufacturing at the time was a guy named Troy Livingston, and he's been interviewed, not by me, but he's talked about his experiences. He opened that thing up and he was horrified, horrified. Now, Al Alcorn, creator of Pong, was a very good engineer. The circuit board was very good. We're not talking about the circuit board. We're talking about what the heck is this coin door? What the heck is this power supply? These parts are not going to stand up to the rigors of the coin-op world. Because these coin-op games, they get banged up. People get mad at these games and uh, beat on them a little bit. A little bit. (laughs) A lot. They're in bars. There are drunk people doing God knows what with them. Uh, People are drinking literally as they play the game and spilling their beer down the front. (laughs) I mean, arcade games take a lot of abuse. More than you would think. Exactly. And I mean, Atari obviously became very good at this later on. I mean, Atari had very good manufacturing when it was a big company, but in the beginning here, these Atari people had no idea. And they knew they had no idea. You, you may recall that they originally had never even planned to manufacture games in the first place. That was not what they were founded for. But then they couldn't get anyone to take Pong. So it's like, well, if nobody else is going to manufacture Pong, then we'll manufacture Pong. And the units basically looked like what would happen if a bunch of guys that had no idea how to manufacture things decided they were going to manufacture something. I mean, they worked. I mean, kudos to them for that. But (laughs) it was a mess. So Troy Livingston redesigned kind of those elements of the game. Get better coin door in, get better coin slot in, get, get better power supply in, just get better wiring harnesses, just kind of redo everything that isn't the core board. Clean it all up. And then for the core board, they don't have that expertise. They don't have solid state expertise in-house because you do have to remember that all of these arcade companies, for the most part, companies like 4Play and Ramtech are a little different, but for the most part, these companies that are involved in the arcade industry are electromechanical companies. They don't have solid-state expertise. So Allied Leisure didn't have solid-state expertise just like all the others didn't. But they knew someone that did. And that someone is a company called Universal Research Laboratories, uh, URL. They usually went by URL for short. URL was a Chicago company because, of course, a lot of this subcontracting infrastructure is up in Chicago for the reasons we articulated before. Everybody's there. It was founded by a couple of ex-Seberg engineers, Seberg being a major, major jukebox manufacturer. Bob Polonik and Bill Olegis uh, were the guys that founded it. They founded it to be a contract manufacturer of PCBs and other type products. They specialized in audio boards, which is not a surprise. They came from a jukebox company. In the late 60s, these realistic audiovisual games were starting to use electronic sound effects. This is the first time that electronics were being used for sound. A lot of these games coming out, your your Speedway-type games and whatnot, required some kind of electronic soundboard. URL was one of the companies that was really providing those. That was their kind of main focus. But, I mean, 
these guys were electrical engineers. They knew how to do boards generally. It's just that sound was where they focused on. So they'd had dealings with URL before, and URL was known to be a, a company that knew what it was doing. So they contracted with URL to do the boards, and then they did everything else in-house because they were, like I said, very well vertically integrated. And so they got this together, and in March, they released their Pong clone, which was called Paddle Battle. Paddle Battle just takes off hugely, and uh, there's two reasons for that. First of all, they have the good manufacturing. They're doing 150 units a day, which is a phenomenal amount. Like I said, at this point, Atari's barely managing a dozen. The other thing is, is they've gotten in right before the Chicago companies do. We're going to go to them next. That's kind of group three or phase three is the Chicago companies. The Chicago companies finally get involved, but it takes them a while to realize what's happening. It takes them just long enough that companies like Ramtech and Allied Leisure get into the market before they do. So they're the only company with any kind of real manufacturing capability that at this point is making Pong clones, in this case, Paddle Battle. So it's huge. I mean, they're getting orders left, right, every which way. And they end up making about 17,000 of them. Atari, by, we don't know exactly how many units they made. By November 73, they'd made 6,000. By the middle of 74, they were up to 8,000. They may have gotten as high as 10 or 12,000 by the end, but we we don't really have final figures. But let's say they made about 8,000. That's a reasonable figure. Allied Leisure made more than double that. Allied Leisure buries everybody else in the market. The reason for that is that head start, because then you get that third phase. Finally, in April and May, the Chicago companies get involved. Gottlieb never does. Gottlieb is a pinball company. Gottlieb, in their mind, will always be a pinball company. Much later, they get into video games. Qbert is a Gottlieb game. At this period of time, they have no interest in chasing fads. They did not get into AV games. They did not get into ball and paddle games. The other three do. Bally, through its Midway subsidiary, uh, Williams and Chicago Coin, all release in April and May a Pong game. Bally's is actually licensed. Bally is the one company that goes to Atari and gets an official license for Pong. You may recall from our Atari episode that Atari and Bally already had dealings. Atari had a development contract with Bally, and they had actually offered Pong to Bally in fulfillment of that contract. And Bally turned it down. A lot of people think that Bally then circled back around and accepted the game in fulfillment of the contract. That's not actually accurate. What happened is that Atari's second game, and I think we talked about this in the Atari episode, but I'll just recap. Atari's second game, Space Race, was licensed to Bally in fulfillment of the development contract. But when Bally saw what a huge hit Pong was, they made a separate deal to license Pong as well. So Midway releases Winner in April. And it does very well because, I mean, Bally slash Midway, this is the big organization, mostly because of their slot machine business. This is the big organization. So you better believe they have a good factory and good manufacturing and good capability. So it does well. It does somewhere between seven and 9,000 units. Uh, sources differ, but somewhere between seven and 9,000 units. So again, they're doing about what Atari did and maybe even a little more than what Atari did. But they don't hit the 17,000 that Allied Leisure do. Uh, Chicago Coin and Williams do okay with theirs. They sell several thousand units each, but they also don't hit what Allied Leisure does. And the reason for that 
is that head start. Of course, things always sell best in a fad-driven industry, and the coin-op, as we've discussed before, is definitely a fad-driven industry. Things sell best when they're brand new. Allied Leisure, in that month that they don't have the market to themselves, but they're the only company with big manufacturing that's in the market. During that period, they are able to make a ton of sales. By the time the other companies are coming in, they're in a position where they can cut the price. Because they've made enough up front, they've made money hand over fist, that they can start cutting the price and still come away with a decent profit. Whereas the guys that are just getting started can't afford to take their price too low or they won't make any money on it. So they start a price war. They start undercutting the Chicago companies, which means that their product keeps selling. And then just when the Chicago companies are getting to the point where they've sold in enough units that they can maybe start cutting their own prices, they beat everyone to the market with a four-player ball and paddle game. That's the next step. After the two-player games comes the four-player games. Doubles, which makes sense because, you know, Pong is kind of tennis or table tennis based. And both tennis and table tennis have the concept also of doubles matches. So then they released Tennis Tourney in about July of 1973. Tennis Tourney being a four-player game with two paddles on each side. So now that kills, that destroys the market for regular Pong games. Because you don't need four players to play these games. You can still play a two-player game using these four-player games. But you have the option to go to four-player games. Or you could do a three-player game where I'm really good at this game. I'll just be on this side with this one paddle and I'll beat both of you. So this is something that you can still play it with just two people, but has the potential to take in double the money if you have four people playing it. So, of course, that destroys the market for two-player Pong games. Just at the point where everyone else is starting to catch up with Allied Leisure, they leap ahead of the competition with Tennis Tourney. And Tennis Tourney doesn't sell nearly as many units as Paddle Battle did. But the point is, they've stayed one step ahead of their competition. Everyone else has to start releasing four-player games. Uh, Midway, their Pong clone had been Winner, and so they released Winner 4. Atari released Pong doubles in September. And they were kind of forced to. I mean, Bushnell said in interviews that he had not wanted to release a four-player game that fast. He wanted to ride out the two-player game a while longer, but his hand was forced because Allied Leisure released their version, and then two-player was dead. It was done. (laughs) So that's kind of the flow of how these games were introduced in 1973. Atari's the first to market, then some of the smaller companies in the California area get in. Allied Leisure gets in and takes things to a whole nother level manufacturing-wise. Then the big Chicago guys get in and really start flooding the market, but still never quite catch Allied Leisure because Allied Leisure's always one step ahead. That's 73 in a nutshell, and it's 70,000 units, which, as we said, is in coin-op terms, that's huge. And there are a few other variations. By the end of the year, Ramtech and a couple of other companies have released hockey games. This is another logical iteration where instead of having your paddle in the middle of the screen and bouncing the ball, you have your paddle on both ends of the screen. And some of these games were actually two or three paddle games where you had one or two paddles representing forwards and then you still had your goalie. And then you have a hockey rink. So you have, you know, sides all filled in except for the narrow goal and the ball has more places it can bounce off the sides and there are more paddles and you're trying to get it into the goal. 
Uh, this was the next logical step, especially since the Magnavox Odyssey, which we have to remember is where this entire paddle thing began in the first place. The Magnavox Odyssey did have a hockey variation as well as a table tennis variation, so it's not like hockey was something new. Atari, through its key game subsidiary, did another twist. Uh, in October, they released a game called Elimination. In that game, it was a defend-your-goal game. It was a four-player game. You had paddles on each side of the monitor, and you had a little goal, like the hockey goals, on each side. You had to defend your goal, and it was called Elimination because if the ball got into your goal, I think it was four times, but however many times, then you were knocked out of the game. And then your little goal would close up. That became a solid wall. You were done. Game over. And the game continues until there's only one of the four players left standing. That's elimination. Other companies riffed off of that. Midway released a game, or rather Ramtech released a game early the next year that was also licensed to Midway. Midway's version was called Leader. That was an elimination game, but they put a structure in the middle that the ball could bounce off of as well. And so it just added more variety to the gameplay. But it's so this this elimination style game comes in. These hockey style games come in. People are trying to figure out how to keep this Pong craze going. Because right now, nobody really has a conception of the video game as a medium. And I think we've talked about that a little bit before, too. I mean, certainly Atari was very interested in pushing into new areas. They did Space Race. They did Gotcha. They did Grand Track. But for most of the U.S. market, it wasn't that they were doing video games. It's that they were doing ball and paddle games. So they weren't really trying to expand out of that. For, most of them didn't have the expertise to be able to expand out of that. They could copy, but they didn't have the engineers to do original product. It became a matter of figuring out variations to try to keep this market going for as long as possible. And of course, they couldn't really keep the market going. I mean, in 1974, it collapses. It absolutely collapses. There are probably only, uh, you know, I think sales were like somewhere between 20 and 30,000. I think about 30,000. Yeah, 30,000 units. Went from 70,000 to 30,000. It was cut more than in half because the market was saturated. There wasn't anything else you could do with it. You could do slight variations and they kept doing slight variations. Uh, one of the things that they got into in 74 that was new is they got into kind of pinball concepts. It's like, okay, the paddle and the ball can be very similar to pinball, where you use a paddle to knock a ball in and it hits targets. And so there were a lot of games that were kind of pinballish. It wasn't a direct representation of pinball with a pinball table or something like that. But this idea that instead of batting the ball around or batting this ball into the goal, why don't we bat the ball around so that it hits things, which is basically applying pinball principles to video games. And so Ramtech did a game called Clean Sweep, which was actually very similar in a way to Breakout later on. As far as I know, the one didn't really influence the other, but it was a game where you had one paddle at the bottom of the screen and you had dots. You didn't have bricks like in Breakout, but you had dots arrayed across the entirety of the screen. Every time your ball hit one of those dots, that dot would disappear. And, you know, you're bouncing it, ricocheting it off, and the goal is to get rid of all the dots. Clean Sweep. Uh, it was the first arcade video game to use RAM, so it's a little more complex than what came before because, of course, in this case, you can hit the dots in any order. The dots can disappear in any order, so you need random access memory in order to facilitate, you know, dots <laughs> disappearing. Right. You need to have RAM in order to hold all the dots in memory and then turn bits on and off based off of which one's on and which one's off based on who, which got hit. Right. 
And then there was a, a game, certain other games that had concepts where there were a bunch of different squares in the center of the screen and on the edge of the screen. It's a game called TV Pinball that did that and a few others that the goal was to bounce off of those targets and those targets would disappear. Again, similar in a way to Breakout, but not the bricks weren't arrayed like they were in Breakout. Obviously, we'll put some of these games like Clean Sweep in the show notes so you can see what we're talking about better than I can describe them with words. But that's kind of the next thing that they tried to do in 74 and even into 75 to keep this fresh. It's like, we've done everything we can with goals, so let's start experimenting with targets (laughs) is basically what it came down to. And by this time, people are doing their own thing. Atari is not really pursuing ball and paddle games anymore. Ramtech actually becomes kind of the main innovator of a lot of this stuff. They hire an engineer named Hal Ivey, who uh, is very good and spends a long career in the industry. He's very good with the solid state technology. So he kind of becomes one of the main innovators of ball and paddle games in this period. Not that these ball and paddle games do very well. I mean, this is a period of time that the ball and paddle game just is not of interest in the arcade anymore because people are tired of it. There's only so much you can do with it. There is one final attempt, though, to expand the the ball and paddle market in this period, and it's the last major topic that we're going to talk about, and that's the cocktail table boo. We said before, these arcade games, these video games, are really in working-class bars and, and the occasional inner-city arcade. Shopping mall arcades are starting to appear, but shopping mall arcades don't really start becoming big until kind of 75, 76. They're around. They're starting to be a thing, but we're not quite there yet. Pong, being so popular with a more sophisticated crowd, feels like a game that could expand out of working class bars and get into upscale, fancy places. Nothing is more swanky and fancy in these 1970s than the, uh, the cocktail lounge. We're talking about lounges now, where uh, a higher class of patron comes together to mix and mingle in the comfy chairs and, you know, have the fancy drinks. And uh, you have people in suits, cocktail dresses, those nice, fancy piano players, and then the nice lady in the long, flowing dress. Think Roger Rabbit and Jessica. <laughs> right. And obviously, this is not the 1940s, so they're a little less swanky than that. But we're, it's not a working class bar. It is a much higher class location. Well, the problem with a location like this is they are not going to want a stand up arcade cabinet. Because when you have a stand up arcade cabinet, you're going to get people clustering around it. People that are watching, people that are waiting their turn, whatever. So... You put your machine up front here, and then a lot of people are clustered around it. It's going to be noisy. It's going to be a huge crowd. That's going to dissuade people from coming in and relaxing in the lounge. I mean, it, it's completely anathema to the whole idea of what a cocktail lounge is supposed to be. It's, it's not the same thing as a bar. <laughs> it is a higher class bar. Right, exactly. So that's not going to work. So that's why you put a game monitor, a game and a game monitor, in a table. So that you sit at the table and you look down at your game and you have a place to put your fancy cocktail. You can put these tables around. You're not going to make all of your tables cocktail tables, but you can intersperse these tables around the establishment. So you're not going to get people hanging around because you really have to be seated at the the booth or at the table 
to be able to see the game. You're not going to have people standing behind the booth, peering over your shoulder, trying to look at it. The people that are playing it are going to be sitting down just like all your other patrons, so they're not attracting undue attention to themselves. So that's why this kind of tabletop kind of cabinet comes into being. And that's why we call them cocktail tables, because the original venue for these kind of games, and obviously they ended up appearing in arcades and all sorts of other places too. I'm sure you, like me, have seen uh, many a Pac-Man and Ms. Pac-Man cocktail table in an arcade setting. Yes. Yes, I have. But the original idea was that these tables would be in cocktail lounges, hence cocktail cabinet. Now, this market was a strange one. We've talked about the three-tiered system many times. Manufacturers sell to distributors, sell to operators. Well, these operators had never, ever had any luck getting into cocktail lounges, hotel lounges, the occasional restaurant. Never had any luck getting into these venues. So they were quite simply not interested in even trying. It's it's conservative business. The coin-op industry is a conservative business. It's a small number of people involved, and you're never really financially secure. You're one, maybe two disasters away from going out of business at any given time. It is not a business for risk-takers uh, by this time. I mean, when it was getting established, there was more risk-taking. But at this point, it's the same people. In the 70s, the people involved in these businesses are the same people that opened their first distributorships or first operating routes in the 30s. So these are older people. They're very conservative people, and they're one or two disasters away from going under at any given moment. They're not going to take a risk. So even though the manufacturers see the cocktail market as something that could be developed, operators and distributors really don't want to have anything to do with that market because that is just too much of a risk. It is too outside their comfort zone. So. Those aren't the people that do these games. Instead, you get a lot of professionals looking for investment opportunities. In the mid-1970s here, it's for our younger listeners, and quite frankly, the younger listeners even include people our age, because this is before our time too. For our younger listeners, it's hard to understand now that, you know, today we have these things called interest rates. And in the bank, you might get half a percent right now or three quarters of a percent interest on your uh, your savings account. If you're lucky. And, you know, you can buy a house. I don't know what the, I have to look up exactly what the rates are, but you can buy a house at like five or six percent interest on the loan, something like that. Somewhere between three to six. Exactly. Well, in the 1970s, the interest rates were like 15%, 20%. And that was considered good. Inflation was out of control. Interest rates were out of control. And money in the bank didn't necessarily do you much good because the reason the interest rates were so high was inflation was so high. So even though you might have been able to get, let's say, 12% interest in your savings account, I don't know if that's a real number, but we'll go with that. Inflation is so high that the real value of the interest you're accruing is actually much, much lower. So this was a period of time, even more so than other periods of time, that people with extra money didn't want to put it in the bank or even necessarily invest it in the stock market. They wanted to be invested in something tangible that they could see and hold on to, like real estate, for instance, or 
a product like a coin operated game. So, I mean, there were people like doctors and lawyers and whatnot, people that their primary business was not investing in things, but had enough money that they'd rather see it invested in something than than sitting in a bank, uh, uselessly spiraling out of control through inflation. And uh, we're looking for opportunities. There were businessmen who kind of saw this coin-op industry and saw these young professionals and decided they'd bring them together. And so you would put ads in the newspapers and you would host uh, business opportunity seminars where you would bring these people together and say, look at this great opportunity for coin-operated games. These were not distributors. The terms were generally very unfavorable because uh, I think the way it normally worked is that they would split the take with the bizop guy. Bizop was kind of the, the term for these guys. They would split the take with the bizop guy over like the first six months or the first year or something like that. And then after that, they would get the, the full take. We know how coin-operated games work. If you're splitting the profits on the first six months, that's really the only profits the machine is ever getting. So by the time you're getting the full profits, you're getting nothing <laughs> because the machine's already dead. I mean, it's a scam. And they're not distributors with service organizations and whatnot. So you're on your own trying to get these machines repaired if they break down. You don't have the support that a distributor or an operator would give you to run these machines. So this was a big scam, and the, the coin-op industry was not happy about it because it's, they don't want these outsiders in. They wouldn't have wanted these outsiders in even if they were on the up-and-up because they don't want people bypassing that three-tiered system because that's how everyone gets food on the table. So they wouldn't like them if they were legitimate, but they really don't like them when they're illegitimate. They called them blue suede shoes men. It's a stereotype from back in the day, just like we think of the, the stereotypical used car salesman in his overly loud sport coat and being all flashy and, you know, blue suede shoes were seen as like an overly ostentatious piece of wardrobe. So it's kind of this, this slick guy that's trying to look all fancy and be all fancy and entices you with the fancy words and, and really leaves you holding the bag at the end of the day. Come on down to Big Jeffrey's Big Arcade Selling Complex. We got it all. Tabletops, low tops, high tops, side tops. You want a game? We got them. All you have to do is just give us lots and lots of money, and you can get all that more money. 200%, 300%, 500% return on investment for you, <laughs> the consumer. All we have to do is just split for a few months, six months, seven months, eight months, depending on how much money you give us up front. But that's okay, because then after that, you get 100% of the money, all of the money, all for you, in your pocket, for your kids. So come on down to Big Jeffrey's Arcade Emporium, because we know you really want to play some arcade games. <laughs> you, you may be in the wrong field, Jeff. <laughs> Maybe. So, yeah. So, I mean, these machines really did get placed in these locations. There was still an effect of increasing the penetration of video games and increasing the penetration of ball and paddle games into markets that would not generally accept them. So this process was still somewhat useful in growing the, as of yet, virtually non-existent video game industry. It was really even more of a flash in the pan than the original ball and panel market was, because at least that was going through an established industry. This was just, you know, this was just chaos. Literally fly by night, 
few months, maybe a quarter of chaos. Exactly. But there was one tangible company that came out of this, and that's a company called Meadows uh, that we'll just talk about very briefly. Meadows is another one of these companies like Ramtech. It was actually a very important company in the 70s. Then it vanished at the beginning of the Golden Age, and so nobody remembers it because by then, you know, it's, it's out of the public conscience. It was founded by a guy named Meadows, Dan Meadows, I think his name was. It was founded in the 50s. Uh, it had nothing to do with video games. It was a contract manufacturer. It was a California company. It was a Silicon Valley kind of company. I mean, pre-Silicon Valley in the 1950s. But still, you had a lot of electronics guys. You had guys like Lockheed and Ampex on, on the coast there even before the, uh, the Silicon companies came in. And so, you know, these people sometimes needed more manufacturing capacity. And so Meadows was founded to do that. And then Mr. Meadows uh, ended up selling the company later on to, uh, I think in about 1968, to one of his employees named Harry Couric. It's interesting, Harry Couric entered the coin-op industry for completely mercenary reasons. He thought that there was going to be a recession on the horizon in the early 70s, and he was exactly right. There was a recession. And so he wanted to get involved. He wanted to diversify into something that he thought would be more recession-proof than contract manufacturing. And he chose CoinOp because, as we've discussed before, of course, the, the first great golden age of CoinOp, uh, or of pinball at least, I should say, not of all CoinOp, but of pinball, was the Great Depression. Because it was a cheap form of entertainment in a time when nobody had any money. So he was like, okay, if CoinOp did this well during the Great Depression, I bet CoinOp's going to do great during uh, the recession that I think is coming up. So I'll get involved in this CoinOp thing. And so he did, and he got involved in video games specifically. I mean... Because again, uh, video is much easier to get into when you have no idea what you're doing than the electromechanical stuff is because you can just rip off a board and <laughs> wire it into a cabinet and you're good to go. And theoretically, it's easier to operate, easier to duplicate. Mm -hmm. So Harry Couric got Meadows involved in this and he created, uh, not he personally, but his engineers created a game called Flim Flam. It was a cocktail game. It was four player. It was ball and paddle. It had a couple of uh, unique features to it. It had joysticks instead of pots for controls. So you could move the uh, paddle not just up and down, but also left and right, you know, four directional movement. It also had a flim and a flam button. That's where the name flim flam comes from. And these buttons allowed you to kind of manipulate the ball a little bit, cause the ball to wobble or go in some strange direction. It also had multiple difficulty levels, uh, so to speak. They didn't call them difficulty levels, but there were three paddle sizes you could select at the beginning of the game. So if you had a less adept player, you could give them a larger paddle to make it easier. Or if you're a better player, you could shrink the paddle down and it was kind of a form, could be a form of handicapping too. So it had a couple of interesting features and it was marketed through one of these uh, companies that was specifically targeting the, uh, the cocktail market and it was a cocktail cabinet game. They introduced it in 74. It stayed in production until early 76. And they sold 12,000 units of Flim Flam. Not too bad. Huge. Uh, especially considering, remember, they, they launched it in 74. Uh, you know, by 74, kind of the days of the big Pong runs were over. You know, all the companies doing 8, 10, 12, 17,000 units were doing the, that kind of business in 73. Meadows was able to do it between 74 and 76. Because they were kind of the company that did the best at capitalizing on this brief cocktail boom. Uh, the cocktail boom, there were about 10,000 cocktail cabinets sold in 74. It jumped to 26,000 in 75. I mean, it was briefly a big deal. 
Uh, Nutting went there, too. Nutting decided they couldn't compete in uprights. They weren't doing very well there. So they embraced uh, the cocktail market whole hog as well. That ended up not working out for them, and they eventually vanished. Meadows stuck around after the cocktail cabinet boom. They went to normal upright cabinet games, and, and they were one of the more successful manufacturers in kind of the 76, 77, 78 period. They ended up getting purchased by a company called Holosonics, which was not the inventor of the hologram, but it was basically a company that was formed to acquire all the important patents from the hologram and become a hologram company. And then I guess they purchased Meadows because they thought that maybe they could use holograms in arcade games or something. Um, I don't think they ever really did. Holosonics had trouble very soon after that, and they went bankrupt. And as went Holosonics, so went Meadows. And so that was kind of the end of them. But they were very briefly important, too. So, I mean, the main kind of companies in the 1970s, pre-Golden Age 1970s, pre-Space Invaders, were Atari and, and Bally. And Ramtech, Meadows was a big one. Allied Leisure was in and out as kind of big. And uh, and then Exidy, uh, which started out with ball and paddle games as well. Uh, we won't get into them right now, but it was all kind of companies that started in ball and paddle games, though, if you didn't grow out of that, if you didn't expand out of that, then you ended up like a nutting, which never figured out how to grow out of that and eventually died because ball and paddle was finally pretty much dead once and for all by 1976. because. The cocktail boom gave it a second kind of lease on life in certain locations, but then it was basically gone. And, you know, the the traditional stand-up cabinet market, bars and arcades, was big in 73, collapsed in 74, and then the arcade video game market started to come back in 75. But at that point, it was the driving games and the one-on-one dueling games like Tank and Gunfight and the shooting gallery games like Seawolf that were taking over. The ball and paddle was was no more. So the ball and paddle game was important. You needed something that's simple in order to get people interested. And you needed something, quite frankly, that simple to copy to get the national profile that video games needed. Because if it had been just left to Atari's devices, it wouldn't have reached enough of the country to to make the difference it did. So that was all very important. You needed all of that. At the end of the day, there was only so much you could do with a ball and, uh, you know, two to six (laughs) paddles or whatever. And so at the end of the day, that market fell apart. And so that was kind of the rise and fall of the of the first video game fan. It's really important. It is something that was very much like kindling for a fire. It's something that can burn bright, burn powerful, but it can't sustain itself. But you still need that in order to build the industry further on. And it sort of did until the great video game crash later on. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much the importance of Pong and cementing itself in the history and annals of society. Absolutely. So since we have covered all the sons of Pong, where do we go next time? We wanted to stay away from companies for a while. And we did that. What, three, four episodes? Yeah, well, I mean, we want to cover companies. They're interesting. I just, you know, after doing a four-part episode on Atari, it it felt like we dove into another company right away. That would be kind of overkill. So let's leave North America. Yeah, and, you know, uh, another thing we haven't done in a very long time, actually, is Japan. I mean, Japan's difficult, right, because we don't have the sources. Uh, We just don't have the same sources for Japan that we do for the uh, English-speaking world because all those sources are in Japanese. Which means we have the sources, we just lack the whole reading and understanding part of it. 
But there is one very good book on the Japanese video game industry that I hope that someday somebody does a real translation of that has been kind of、uh, hackily translated by a friend of the show, Ethan Johnson. It's not quite a straight Google translation because, of course, Google doesn't do,、uh, do Japanese well.、Uh, he's, he's cleaned it up a little bit from that, but it's also not a professional translation, so there's still a lot of it that's gobbledygook. But it's enough that it's provided some interesting insights into the early history of some of the Japanese companies that we didn't necessarily have otherwise. I think an interesting company to, to take a little time on, it won't be as good a history as our Western histories are, just because we don't have the same sources. But one company that's very interesting to talk about is Konami. Konami has been in the video game news a whole lot over the last couple of years because of the transitions they've been going through and, and most famously cutting ties with、uh, Hideo Kojima. They're really shifting focus to mobile and、uh, in their gaming business. They, they actually do slot machines. It seems like they don't really want to be a AAA video game developer anymore. It's really not surprising when you look at the overall history of Konami, because unlike some of the other companies, video games aren't really necessarily part of their DNA. This is a company that has actually changed its focus multiple times in its short history because they've always been kind of looking for a field where they feel they can make the most impact financially. They're not really tied up so much in the art of creating video games as they are just. Looking for fields where they can make money in. Looking back at Konami's history is kind of instructive for this current situation for that reason. And I think it would be kind of fun to、uh, do as best as we can with the sources available in looking back at the,、uh, the history of Konami as a company. All right. The Many Faces of Konami. Next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where you can find links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com, email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com, and follow us on Twitter at TCW Podcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com forward slash song forward slash airplane mode used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music found at freemusicarchive.org used under a Creative Commons attribution license.